as a parent, you would never wish for your child to have anything bad happen to them. But you do want the growth that happens when they go through hard things. And I think that's how Heavenly Father views us in Him giving us the trials that He knows we can handle. He knows also the blessing that comes after. He knows the person that you are going to become if you can conquer these different trials that you're going through. Ask any mom and they'll likely tell you, raising kids is a wonderful and life-changing experience, but very challenging at times. After a poignant line in her patriarchal blessing, Casey Davidson, a Brisbane mother of four, grew up knowing that for her, motherhood was going to bring some extra challenges. Little did she realise that marrying her future husband would form a rare combination of genetics and result in their first three children being born with albinism. She definitely didn't anticipate her eldest later developing stage four cancer. In this episode, Casey joins me to share what it's like to have children with albinism, how her family navigated the turmoil and rigmarole of cancer, and how throughout it all, prayers to heaven were always answered. I'm Maddie Sterling, and this is Choosing Faith, a podcast where we interview members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and find out what it's really like to live and continuously choose a life of faith across Australia and New Zealand. Casey's joining us from Brisbane today. I'm so excited to be talking to her. Welcome, Casey. Hi. (laughs) Thank you. I'm excited to be here and chat with you. (laughs) You do have a bit of an overwhelming story to jump into right away, Casey. So before we get to that point, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself, your family? Who is Casey? (laughs) Who is Casey? That is a mystery question. Um, Still figuring that one out. But yes, I'm Casey and I'm married to Tom and we have four kids together. Um, Esther, Tommy, Rosie and Oakley. We got two girls and two boys um, and they're all sort of under the age of eight at this point. (laughs) My favorite thing to do is just be outside in nature and by the beach. It's just my happy place. And the kids too, they're pretty outdoorsy and fun. And so they love having picnics each weekend. That's sort of what we're doing at the moment. And I, both me and Tom have grown up in Australia. So how long have you been married? We just celebrated our 10 year anniversary. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. You must be feeling quite sentimental with a 10 year milestone. Yeah, definitely. And especially thinking a lot about talking to you, it sort of made me go back and revisit, I guess, different moments in our life together and just observing how he is as a father and husband and sort of all the wonderful things he's done for us really makes you fall in love all over again, I guess. (laughs) Oh, so sweet. (laughs) And he would totally be mocking me saying that. Oh, yeah. That's just the kind of relationship it is. We're hoping that he doesn't actually listen to that part, right? (laughs) True. Yes, we'll skip over that so I guess what I wanted to know a little bit more is, so you've been married for 10 years, mm-hmm. you've got these beautiful children. You kind of had a vision of what your life would be like from a younger age. You've been a member of the church your whole life. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And you, we spoken earlier, you told me that you got a patriarchal blessing when you yeah. were quite young. You were 12? Yeah, I was only 12. You know how they have like the faith in God booklets and then when you get to young women's, you've got the personal progress and all those types of things. And so mm-hmm. when I would get these booklets. I would just get so excited. So in primary, you get them and I tick off all my lists. And one of them was like patriarchal blessing. And I was like, Oh, what's that? And I remember asking, you know, Bishop about it. And I felt very strongly that I, 
needed to get a patriarchal blessing and um, Bishop thought it was a good idea too after he had an interview. It was quite a long blessing and a beautiful one, but um, one of the main parts that stuck out to me was it said, um, you'll need the ends of the reserves of your energy to take care of your children, which... (laughs) Is a pretty intense line, like the ends of the reserves of your energy. <laughs> um, also, as a twelve-year-old, you don't have any concept of what that really no, means. Not really. I mean, like, I think like my mom at the time had sort of had a good reaction to it and was kind of like, "Oh, that's interesting." And so that made me look into it a bit more. And over like teenage years, I would just ask certain people that I sort of trusted or thought might have some good insight what they thought it might mean. And, you know, most people were kind of really shocked about it and like, "Oh, that sounds scary." But I had one guy say to me, "Maybe it just means you'll be like a really great mom." And I was like, "Yep, I'm sticking with that one. That's it." <laughs> <laughs> but there's a bit more to it. Yeah. <laughs> what a line. So I guess you kind of grew up with the, the blessing. We, as we all do, we have our patriarchal blessings to guide us and help us make decisions. Yeah. How old were you when you actually got married? Um, I was 18 years old. Okay. And it wasn't too much longer after that that you felt pregnant? Yeah. Just before my 20th birthday, I had Esther. Wow. You do drag me as I mean, maybe it's, I'm speaking to you with the benefit of 10 years of experience of being a mom and a <laughs> sure. wife, but as a mature soul that you kind of really had a, um, a grander vision for your life, you weren't really so interested in the party life. I don't know. I'm that, just putting no, this you're right. on. You're but. hitting it right on the head. I just, I had decided very young, like what I wanted to do and I wanted to get married in the temple and um, I wanted the blessings of that. And I also had those things in my patriarchal blessing that talked about my children that I was also curious about. Um, <laughs> and me and Tom had decided early on that if we were going to have kids, we were going to have our kids. And hopefully then we would still be young when our kids were old enough to do stuff, which I'm sort of finding now, which is kind of fun. That's great. I like that <laughs> you were just so convicted in what you wanted. Yeah. Looking back, it's crazy that I was so adamant about it and so okay with that, that life. But it's made it easy not to regret anything too because it's like, no, I decided this. It didn't just happen to me. So, mm. Well, that must have helped you a lot because when you first had Esther, mm-hmm. there were some complications and you began to feel that you were learning about the reason for the line in your patriarchal blessing. Why yeah. was this? Like, What was it about Esther that was a little bit different? Um, well, Esther was born with completely white hair and very, very fair skin and um, – Tom's sister actually is very, very fair. So that wasn't a worry to me initially. I was like, oh, yeah, we've got very fair relatives. It's fine. Um, But, yeah, nurses and doctors sort of kept coming in and checking up on her and no one really said anything um, when she was born. But about three months later, her eyes – so when babies are born, their eyes sort of roll around a bit. They're not focusing on anything. Um, And at about three months, they they settle and they can look at you and different things like that. And at about three months old, she wasn't doing that. But as we've discussed, I'm a pretty chill person. And I was like, nah, she's fine. She's all good. And both my mom and my mother-in-law had sort of mentioned to me, they're like, oh, you know – have you thought about looking into her eyes and just a couple things like that? I was like, she's fine. You know, they'll settle. It's all good. And eventually my mother-in-law actually was like, do you mind if I just take her to get a checkup at the doctors? And I was like, yeah, it's fine. I think I had like something on that day that I couldn't go with her. So she, she took Esther and, and she called me up in tears saying that Esther is completely blind. And, um, it was, it was a crazy feeling because it was like instantly you're like, how could I not have checked on that as her mom? 
Um, but also super grateful that my mother-in-law did check on it. It was a weird emotion of like, she's completely blind, but it hasn't been confirmed by like a specialist. So I sort of had to like, just stop my feelings and wait. There's sort of that weird waiting game of like, I can't react without all the information. I'm, I'm just that type of person where like, I need more. Uh, they booked her into a specialist and, and eventually found out that she has, it's called ocular cutaneous albinism, which actually means she's not completely blind. <laughs> However, she is legally blind. And obviously all through this, I was, there was this weird, um, feeling of like, Oh, this is what my patriarchal blessing was talking about. It wasn't sort of like this big, dramatic, horrible thing that was happening to me and my child. It was just kind of like, Oh yeah, I've been prepared for this. Have my father warned me about this. Cool. This is what I've got to deal with. Like there are much worse things. And so it was this strange is oxymoron the right word? Like two feelings about it where it was like, you are sort of uh, upset and dealing with something that's scary. But on the other hand, you sort of have this, this assurity and knowledge that this is what's supposed to be happening. Mm. And that yeah. you weren't alone or at least somebody, Absolutely. you know, Heavenly Father knew about it and yeah. had the foresight to warn you as well. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it was, yeah, it was, it was sort of a piece of like, he knew that this could be something that I would have struggled with had I not known about it. And so... I was given this beautiful blessing of um, peace of like, okay, well, you know about it. You're prepared. Mm. At least I thought. <laughs> yeah, at least you thought. Yeah. yeah. So, and then along came your second child. Yeah. So Tommy came along and he had albinism too. So me and Tom meeting each other is like one in a hundred thousand that we would both have this gene um, and it's a recessive gene. So it cannot show up for generations. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah, you can not know that you have it. <laughs> and both our grandmas have done genealogy back really, really far. And there's no one or no sign that anyone has had albinism on either of our families. So it's really interesting that there's no indication, you know. Um, mm. And so once you find out that you both have the gene, there's a one in four chance um, for each pregnancy that they'll have albinism. Every time we sort of fell pregnant, it was sort of like rolling the dice of like, will they, won't they? So yeah, mm. when we had Tommy, he had albinism too. And then we had Rosie and so did she. <laughs> so our first three had albinism and our last one doesn't. So we mm -hmm. got the reversal of the <laughs> one in four. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell me what are some of the main symptoms of albinism? Um, what kind of impact does that have on your family? What can your kids can and what can they not do? Yeah, sure. So albinism basically means loss of pigment in the hair, skin and eyes. Um, and there's varying degrees of that, but often along with, um, you know, having white hair and fair skin, they're there's a lot of issues with the eyes and it all happens um, when they're a baby in your tummy and they get like underdeveloped retinas um, and there's a whole bunch of different um, side effects, I guess, within their eyes. Um, so often people are like, oh, they look fine and it's or they maybe have vision that's not great the same as someone else would have vision that's not great. Um, but because theirs is all behind the eye, it's stuff that can't really be fixed. So there's, um, I think there's like four or five different things wrong with their eyes. One is just astigmatism, which is, is the same as anyone else, um, where your vision's not clear or long, short distance, that type of thing. And then they also have what's called nystagmus, which is where your eyes move back and forth uncontrollably. And then there's like photophobia, which is light sensitivity. So the best way I can explain it is 
when they go outside in the sun, it's like overexposure on a camera. So if you've ever looked at an image where it's like mainly white, but you can sort of see like the shadows in the photo, that's sort of how they see when they go outside. So they can be like a complete whiteout where they can't see anything at all. The other main side effect is obviously their skin. They're more susceptible to skin cancer. Um, so we've got to be very careful with them going out in the sun and making sure that they have hats on and sunscreen and that they're covered. And of course, we live in Queensland, Australia, which is um, one of the hotter places to live. Yeah. So I think it's the number one skin cancer capital in the world, or oh, at least it's you. <laughs> okay, rewind. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. I remember for the first um, probably about two or three years having Esther and Tommy, I just didn't go in the sun because I was just terrified. And if you'd park at a shop and you didn't have cover, I remember like running from the car to the shopping center with the kids, like just one in each arm type of thing. Obviously, there's a bit of fear there when you don't really know what can happen. Like I said, I was an outdoorsy person and would go to the beach all the time. So I got very, very pale very quickly. Um <laughs> hadn't seen the sun very often. We'd only like go outside. It felt like vampires a little bit. It's like, we can't go outside. We can't touch the sun. <laughs> um, but very quickly got over that and learned that you have to live life and be able to, and have my kids to be able to live a normal life as well. So we've learned different techniques and made sure we're a bit more prepared um, and are sort of exposing our kids to as many experiences as we can. Mm -hmm. yeah. So when you do go outside, because I know that you do still, like you said, you go on picnics and things, mm -hmm. um, you're just a bit more careful now about what time of day you go as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we try and avoid obviously the middle of the day and the heat of the day. In summer, often we won't go. You can't even go outside from like nine o'clock till four or five o'clock because the sun is so hot here in Queensland. So um, I've got my kids really excited about sunsets. So we love to go to sunset. <laughs> Um, but it's just that perfect time of day and like the most beautiful time of day. So it works out fine. We like to go to one of the little beaches here and set up and have little picnics and watch the sunset. So, But if we have to be out in the sun, like if we're going to a birthday party or different things like that, it's a lot of hats and sunscreen, reapplying sunscreen, just being really, really conscious of, of how long they've been in the sun and they themselves mm. gravitate towards the shade wherever we are anyway, so it's not too bad. Because they are the, the light is just a bit overwhelming yeah, to, to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. How how do they describe to you how they experience things? Like they can see shadows and, and different light variations, but being legally blind, like how much can they really see and do as a result of that? Sure. So it's a bit of a tricky one. Um, and I always try and explain it to people as it's it's sort of circumstantial vision. So when they're inside, they can see a lot better. For Esther, she can probably see a meter or two in front decently well. And same with the other two, sort of like a meter or so in front of them, they can see fine. They get really mad at me though when I say like they can't see further than that because they're like, I can see further than that. Like I can see that that's a tree or that's a car or whatever it might be. But um, from from doing research the best way to describe it. It's like one of those old school TVs. So we can see in like high definition where they is very pixelated. So they can make out like the shapes of what things are far away, obviously under good lighting circumstances. Yeah. Um, but you throw in light and it's just game over. <laughs> There's also another element to it, which is their memory. You often hear this when people have disabilities or, or other issues. Sometimes other senses can take over. And a big one for my kids is they've got really good memories. So after they've been somewhere once and sort of mapped it out, the next time we come, it can look like 
no problem. And so they fooled me for a long time and I thought they could see great. Mm. Um, but every time we would go to the optometrist or ophthalmologist, they were like, actually, no, they can't really see very good. <laughs> so it was, they're very good at tricking you on how they can see. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but for them, it, it's their normal, isn't it? So they don't really know exactly. any different and they're just kids. They want to live their life. hundred <laughs> percent, which I love telling people too, because I think we build stuff up in our own heads of what we would feel like, but we would ha- we would know loss then because we've had the sad. So the feeling comes from knowing what you would lose where they don't know what they've lost. And we haven't made a point of saying that to them. You know, it's not like, yeah, like well, course. you can't see very good. <laughs> Imagine um, what you could see if you had my eyes. Exactly. No. That's <laughs> not really how we um, like to parent. <laughs> no. As a mother, that must have been really challenging to watch your kids growing up that way and a little bit mm-hmm. different, obviously, to how you envisioned having your family and the kinds of activities you'd be doing. Yeah. Take this how you will. I used to joke that Heavenly Father was laughing at me because I remember saying, um, please let them have my skin <laughs> because I've got that like tan skin that can last. I can just be out in the sun and I really enjoyed sports. So I enjoyed, I remember having friends that were very fair and had to, you know, go back and put sunscreen on. It just wasn't as enjoyable for them. And silly me asked a silly question. <laughs> and Heavenly Father went, ha, 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 very funny. <laughs> Oh my so, goodness. I'm sure that's not the reason, but <laughs> quite funny. Yeah. That's how I cope with it anyway. <laughs> yeah. But for them, again, we said it's a normal. You were seeing them with adult eyes. And one of the things that you hoped to fix was the, the eye movement, right? Back and forth because of how kids would react when they got older and that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We started meeting up with other people that had um, either albinism or or vision problems. And there's a school in the city called Narbathong and they cater to anyone with vision problems. And so I met a mum there and her son just had nystagmus and she had told me about this surgery over in America. And up until then, there was nothing substantial in Australia that helped with their vision. And so naturally as a mom, it was like that glimmer of hope of like, well, if there's something that can help my children, I'm going to look into that as much as possible. And I ran home that night. I researched everything. I even messaged and emailed the doctor over there and I showed Tom and there was this like beautiful video of this girl who had gone from being like very, very blind to being able to see and like her eyes were straight, not moving. And it was this beautiful story. And me and Tom were both like just in tears at like the idea that there was some hope. And I turned to Tom and I'm like, we've got to do it. And he's like, yep, let's do it. And so I emailed them. We like booked in an appointment. Uh, Obviously coming from Australia, it was in America and it was a trial surgery in America too. So it was very expensive. Um, There was obviously flights involved, accommodation. Um, Our kids just happened to be the exact prime ages like optimal for this surgery, uh, which was crazy. And then I don't know why, but I just never, there just was never anything in me that like this wasn't going to happen. It was just like, no, I've been presented with something that will help my children. It's just going to happen. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, we had sort of done everything we could do. And then it was like, all right, we now have to figure out how to get um, money to be able to, to get these surgeries done. 
and we were over at um, the family's house and one of Tom's uncles was there and he's a lawyer. And this is the first time we're telling him about it. This happened like over a matter of days. He's like, just a second, I got to go make a phone call. I'm like, okay. And he goes outside and he comes back in. He's like, I've got the money for you. And we're just like in absolute shock. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, how do you have the money for us? And he's like, well, me and my partners have been working on um, a case where a guy has just passed away and he had quite a lot of money that he wanted to donate to charities. And we've just spent the last couple of months giving them, giving portions of the money away to big charities. And only yesterday we were discussing how with the last of the money, we wanted to give them away to an individual or family that might need it. And, um, it was the exact amount of money that we needed to not only pay for the surgeries, but for the flights and accommodation and everything that we needed, including like the conversion rate at the time, because it was awful. (laughs) Um, And so it was just an absolute miracle. Like there's no other way to describe it. Like everything was just so perfect for that to happen. So we did. We went over. Didn't you say it was like $70,000 or something? $70,000 we needed. Mm-hmm. And that was the yeah. exact amount that he had reserved. Exact amount left. And the way he described the guy that passed away is he was the type of guy that only had like one fork and knife and a cup and spoon at his house. Like he didn't live lavish. He lived simply and was just just kept all of his money and just didn't have any close family. So... It's crazy to think like the amount of lives he would have helped as well, not just ours. Wow. So that was your first miracle. Then you went to America. The mm-hmm. kids had the surgery. Yeah. How did it go from there? Was it all successful? Yeah. So it went really, really well. Um, we ran into a little bit of trouble because Tommy got a bit sick. And the way we had planned the the trip there, um, Tommy and Esther's surgery was towards the end. And so normally you have to, if they have like a runny nose, they can't be under anesthetics. So they won't choke or anything like that. And so he had a bit of runny nose, so it got pushed back um, a week. Um, and normally what happens is after you have the surgery, one of the side effects is that an eye can be turned or something like that, but it's a quick fix for this doctor because he knows what he's doing. Um, so unfortunately, Esther's went great. Everything was perfect. But Tommy, um, because we left sort of a week after the surgery, there wasn't a chance for the doctor to pick up on the turn and to do a second surgery. So when we got back, that was something that we were looking into doing here. But other than that, honestly, the the, the biggest thing about this surgery is that they went from not being able to stop and stare. And as you can imagine, when they would go to school, being able to read and, and write, that would be hugely impactful. So after the surgery, they were able to actually stop and stare and, and control it. So their eyes still do move a little bit. Um, but when they need them to, they, they work for them. So couldn't be happier. <laughs> That's brilliant. I can see your joy. Like, Oh, you're so relieved. <laughs> it is such a relief. Um, it's a bit scary because Rosie hasn't able to have, hasn't been able to have the surgery. So I'm a bit nervous okay. about that, but it's also interesting to see the difference and if there is a big difference. Um, mm. but yeah, COVID's not helping with that one. <laughs> no, COVID's not helping with anything. No. <laughs> Well, I imagine that experience, even though, you know, the ends of reserves of your energy is still maybe yet to be tested, but mm-hmm. I'm sure in that moment you really felt like Heavenly Father was watching over you and and that line in your blessing was really making a lot of sense. Absolutely. I actually did after each trial sort of be like, oh, that's what they were talking about. Cool. We're good now. So, However... <laughs> 
it was not too long after that that again you noticed something with Esther. So yeah. how did this unfold? Can you tell me about this moment when you sure. noticed that Esther wasn't feeling well? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, hadn't really been in the sun in a long time with my kids and I sort of I was about 20 weeks pregnant with Rosie and my mom was like, "Hey, do you want to come up to Bundaberg? My grandparents have a house on the beach there." And I was like, "Yes, let's go. I want to go up to the beach." And I also wanted to test like going out in the sun with the kids as well. So Tom was working, so he stayed here. We headed up to Bundaberg. And the first night we were there was just very hot and uncomfortable. It was the middle of January. As you know, summers here are just crazy. Just and the further awful. up north you yeah. go, the hotter it is. But I was actually more focused on Tommy because he was like two. And so he was really grumpy and he was screaming. Where Esther was sort of just like, hey, mom, like my back's a bit sore. Can you rub it? And then the next day when we woke up, she still hadn't eaten very well. She was, she just looked uncomfortable. But in my head, like I still hadn't gone to the beach yet. <laughs> so there's like a very selfish part of me that was like, I thought maybe it could have been constipation. So I was like, after you go to the toilet, then we'll, if you're still not feeling better, we'll go home. And so we went over to my grandma's house and um, my mom watched Esther and me and my sister. Um, we were both pregnant at the same time. We both headed to the beach and we weren't in the water for more than, you know, five minutes. And I was like, Em, I just don't feel right. And she's like, Oh, it's all right. Just like enjoy it. And I'm like, No, I don't, I don't feel good. I've got to, I think I was also feeling a bit guilty that I so desperately wanted to be at the beach when my daughter was obviously not feeling well. So we headed back. And when I got back, she had like a high temperature and she was laying, laying down and sort of looked, she almost looked passed out, but wasn't passed out, just very uncomfortable. Um, and I just had the feeling to feel her belly. I'd sort of been rubbing her back the night before, but hadn't thought to feel her belly. And it was literally like half the side of her body was, was rock hard. But there's this weird thing up in Bundaberg where you can't get in to see a doctor on the holidays. <laughs> so they um, called a friend who was a doctor and he was just like, look, she's going to need a, an ultrasound. So just take her straight to emergency. So we went straight to emergency and still like my head was a little bit in denial about anything being bad. No one was telling me anything. They had all these young nurses and doctors coming in to look at her and feel her belly. Um, and I finally grabbed one of the nurses and I was like, this isn't just constipation, is it? And she's like, no, no, it's not. You knew it was something bigger, but there was just no answer. So it was sort of sitting in limbo for like most of the day. We were so lucky to be honest because Esther was into this show called Doc McStuffins, which is like a kid's show and she's like a little doctor of her pets. So she was really excited. She like she had to get needles and all these hard things. And she was like, yeah, give me a needle. This is great. What are you doing? <laughs> and she's like just turned four. And then this really young doctor came in. I could just tell that like he wasn't going to tell me something good. And I just felt sorry for him. I'm like this poor young doctor. I'm probably like one of his first cases where he's going to tell this really bad thing to. It said the typical line of like, do you want to sit down? <laughs> Which is oh, like, that never a good line. <laughs> yeah, never a good oh. thing to hear. My and dad, just side note, my dad said that to me one time, like called the school, emergency phone call to oh tell me that my bunny rabbit had died. <laughs> I yeah. was panicking that, you know, my brother would be hit by a car or something right? terrible. And I was like, oh, my gosh, never use that line again unless it's actually, <laughs> actually <laughs> Come on, Dad. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, that is a, that's a terrifying it's, line to hear. It's the line out of all the movies. And I'm obviously pretty pregnant as well. So I did sit down. I took the advice. Um, and he said, Esther has two big masses in her kidneys. One is 10 centimeters by 11 centimeters and the other is five centimeters by five centimeters. 
the poor doctor's like waiting for me to like break down and cry or have this big reaction. I'm like, keep going, keep going. I need, <laughs> I need it all. <laughs> like, what does masses mean? And he's like, look, it's most likely a tumor. Um, she, she has cancer. Uh, <laughs> and I always react the wrong way to that by laughing and smiling, but it's just, it just doesn't seem real that your, your four year old baby girl has cancer. I dialed Tom on my phone and I said, can you please repeat that to him? Because I just, that's when all the emotions come flooding in and I couldn't, I I couldn't cope or really, really say anything at that point. One of the nurses showed me to the parents' room to be able to talk to Tom. And we just honestly just broke down and cried. Like, I don't think we even said anything to each other for, I don't even know how long, to be honest. Um, Like I said, (laughs) I thought we were in the clear, you know? And then, yeah, we just had to sort of figure out a plan. So basically what they did, they said, you know, we're going to fly you to, um, it was Lady Salento at the time, but Queensland Children's Hospital in the city that got better equipment. They had called for like the medical plane, aeroplane, and that was going to come in the morning. So you found out this horrible news and you're feeling a range of emotion. I can't even imagine what was going through your head that time, but I feel like I'd be feeling pretty angry after all that you'd already been through. Now for, you know, discovering that you're going on a, a cancer journey, what were the next steps for you and, and your family to adapt to what was happening? Honestly, it was all a bit of a whirlwind. We met up with our, our doctor. He was able to give us all the information and basically told us that Esther had um, stage four and five cancer. On top of those two big tumors that I told you about, she had multiple little ones in both kidneys and then tiny ones had spread to her lungs. And so he said, look, this cancer is, it's called bilateral Wilms tumors, um, bilateral meaning in both kidneys. And he said, look, Wilms tumors is actually one of the most um, treatable cancers. And the next thing he said is like, look, death is pretty much off the table, which was a huge <sighs> weight off my shoulders. Yeah. Huge. He said, prepare to be in hospital for at least 18 months to two years. That's brutal. <laughs> Yep. And keep in mind, I'm like 20 weeks pregnant as well. So yes, I was going to raise that. <laughs> so you've got a third child on the way. Third child on the way. Dealing yeah. with this. And I assume Tom was working full time. Tom was working full time. Um, initially he kept working. And then after, I don't think it was more than a couple of weeks, he was like, if anything goes wrong, I will regret not being there for my daughter. Um, mm-hmm. And another crazy thing about Tom is he hates hospitals. <laughs> He can't stand to be in them. He faints. He wasn't even going to come to Esther's birth at one point because he just, he's not good. So, um, so for him to be able, and because I was pregnant, I couldn't do a lot of the things with Esther. I couldn't go into CT scans or be there for a lot of things. And just physically, I couldn't carry her and and that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so Tom just stepped up unbelievably. Like he went from someone that literally would faint walking into the door to, being able to handle any medical procedure that she had to go through. That was another thing that just made me love him so much more was just Mm. being able to see him step up as a dad and really conquer something that he struggled with. So anyway, Monday chemotherapy and it just, we had to come in, I think for the first, first couple ones was like twice a week and then slowly it went down to once a week. Um, But if at any time they get sick, you basically got to rush them to the hospital. Their little bodies are just so susceptible to any sort of sicknesses. And, and as we've all sort of experienced with, with COVID, we were basically having to do all those sort of protections for Esther. Everyone had to sanitize their hands. Um, mm. You couldn't be around her if you were sick. 
yeah, we sort of lived in a little bit of a bubble. We didn't really get out too much. How long was the process from that first day of chemo to, mm-hmm. you know, the... It was actually a lot shorter than they thought. It was only for about a year. You say it's shorter, but still a year is a it's very significant amount of time. I I know that you knew that God was watching over you and that he was also there with, with Esther as well. And you really shared this the most beautiful story with me earlier about her um, having this dream and those first few moments of discovering what was going on. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell that story? Because I thought that was yeah. so sweet and really reflective that no matter how old we are, like Heavenly Father's watching over us. Yeah, absolutely. So after we got the the diagnosis, it was sort of late at night and Esther was sleeping and she sort of woke up really early that morning um, and she woke up in tears and she was crying. And so I was cuddling her and asking her what was wrong. And she's like, mom, I just, I just had such a good dream. And I was like, what did you dream about? And she's like, I dreamt that daddy was here cuddling me and that there were all these presents under my bed. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's a really nice dream and sort of didn't think anything of it. And then Everything got crazy. We jumped on the plane, went down to Sydney. We met up with, with Tom at the hospital. Obviously, she had to do all the scans and treatments and everything like that. And at the end of the day, they'd set us up in a room and I literally turned around and there was like Esther and Tom laying on the bed asleep and people had brought gifts that were all lined up next to her bed. And exactly what you said, just the fact that Heavenly Father had sort of blessed her with that, that comfort. Um, and it came true. It was very, very, special. How did you remain positive throughout these months? Because there there must have been like little experiences here and there like that that mm-hmm. gave you hope, but a lot of dark days, I mean, we all know that chemo is not a pleasant experience. How sick did she get and how did you remain positive for her? Honestly, we were really lucky that we did have so many little experiences like that that brought either that lovely side to it or funny side to it. Not long after um, Esther started chemo treatment. She ended up getting sick from someone or something. And it was around the time where her hair was starting to fall out as well. You basically get sent up to, um, it's like an isolation room basically, um, to help them not to get sick from anyone else, but also there's multiple kids there. So they're all isolating from each other. And so me and Tom were alternating nights staying there. And Esther has had really long hair. It was all the way down to her bum and it was very, very thin, (laughs) but it was very long. And so I, we had a plan. We were going to like cut it short, like to shoulder length and then let it fall out. When I was there, I would brush it and then plait it. We alternated one night with Tom and as girls, we all know that you don't shower with a braid in, (laughs) especially when your hair's falling out. And so she had jumped in the shower, obviously while Tom was there and all the hair that was falling out had sort of fallen to the back and matted in the back of her braid. So when I got there, I wasn't very happy about it. That night, like I jump in the shower with Esther and I'm like, got heaps of conditioner in. I'm working from the bottom, doing all the right things that, you know, you're supposed to do to get out tangles. And probably about five minutes into it, I'm like, it hits me. It's like, this isn't working more. I'm just ripping out more and more hair. Um, I'm like starting to get really emotional about it. I called for a nurse. But what I didn't know is that I hit the emergency nurse button. And so if you just call for a nurse, they sort of trottle in and like help you. But if you hit the emergency nurse button, about three nurses rush in really, really fast. And I'm completely naked in the shower with Esther. Um, and so they come like swarming in and I'm like, oh, a full freak out. Um, 
And they were so lovely. And they were like, oh, you've hit the wrong button. I'm so sorry. And one of the nurses pulled me aside and she's like, is everything okay? How can I help? And I'm like, I just, I've been trying to get a hair out. I can't get a hair out. I just need a minute. Can you give it a go? And she's like, yeah, yeah, no problem. And then she turns around and she's like, you look really great, by the way. And I'm like pregnant and big. And I'm like, thank you very much. (laughs) It was just that one sentence that just lightened up what was a very traumatic experience for me, but what could have been a lot worse. <laughs> it sprung when you're naked. Yeah. Thankfully, nurses are kind of used to looking at naked bodies, but yes. <laughs> it's just not what you want to happen. <laughs> no, not exactly what I planned for. And yeah, we just had lots of beautiful moments like that. I actually was due to give birth to Rosie on the same day her surgery, her first surgery was booked in, which... I was unbelievably stressed about, but wouldn't admit it to myself. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, I can't. I was so, you have no control over when they booked the surgery. So I couldn't be like, can you move it a week or, you know, and Esther's obviously got tumors that need to come out. It's, it's an emergency thing. And I was lucky enough because of the whole experience, I actually had a personal midwife who was keeping an eye on me. She was like, look, if at any point you want to be induced, just let me know because this is obviously a high-risk situation. Um, I just didn't want to be in a situation where Esther was in surgery and Tom had to be with her and I was giving birth by myself. But at the same time, I had had such great natural births that I didn't really want to be induced. And it was Easter weekend. It was about a week off of the surgery. And my midwife was like, look, if you want to have be induced, basically pull the trigger now because I'm going away in a week or something like that. And I was like, oh, no, I still really believed that I was going to give birth naturally. And then a day or two later, I was over at my parents' house and my brother Eric was about to leave on his mission. And we were just sitting there and I just turned to him and I was like, hey, do you mind giving me a blessing? And he had no idea about birth or, you know, he's what, like 18, 19 years old. (laughs) Um, And he gave me a blessing and literally like it was such a short blessing and it was like, you need to be induced. He didn't even know what the word induced meant. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like he had no concept. And so he was like, what was that all about? You know, like afterwards. And I'm like in tears, just like I've made the wrong decision. I need to call her back. So Esther's surgery was supposed to be on Wednesday. I was induced Friday night, the week before. I had a lot of contractions all night long. They were all very painful. By morning, I was already exhausted. My waters hadn't broke, so they broke my waters for me. And I didn't know at the time, but she was posterior. It's basically spine to spine. So it is like one of the most painful ways to labor. But Did you feel it all along your back then? I did feel it in my back, but my tummy was very, like it was just everywhere. I was just, and I think it was hitting some nerve pain as well, which is just mm. excruciating. Oh. And the anesthesiologist was in another cesarean. So there was no epidural, no nothing <laughs> available to me. And at that point I was literally in agony. Like I was, I hadn't, I had nothing left. And I remember turning to my wife and I'm like, I don't have anything left physically. I don't have anything left emotionally or mentally. I have no idea how I'm going to get birth. Like I just, there's nothing left. (laughs) Um, and obviously now looking back to me, that was the point where it was like, this is the ends of the reserve of your energy. Like I just had tried to be strong for everyone for so long. I'm calling for a cesarean at this point because I'm just, I don't You're think I can it. do it. You're tired. Yeah. I'm tired. I'm in pain. But finally it was time to push and she was out within like two pushes and they actually let me like pull her out myself up to my chest. 
And it was the craziest experience because I was just in disbelief. I was like, how did my body do that? Like I did not have anything there <laughs> to be able to, 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 to give birth. Heavenly Father just has blessed me with so much strength over the years. Thankfully, I did give birth naturally because I healed up really quickly. And a couple of days later, I was back in hospital with Esther and Esther was able to sort of recover after surgery with her baby sister next to her. And, and I was able to get the benefits of still being in hospital and then feeding me. So <laughs> that was nice. Wow. For such a traumatic week, <laughs> it, it kind of sounds like all the events lined up perfectly to give you the best experience in the end. Like you had that yeah. the care that the hospital were taking care of both you and Esther and your baby. Like Absolutely. That's, that's beautiful. So then after that surgery, things started to get better for Esther. I mean, she was... Yeah, there was a couple of complications. She did have to have two surgeries. She's got this nice big scar that runs right across her belly, which she loves now, which is great. <laughs> she would make a joke that she got cut in half at the circus and you know, all silly <laughs> things like that. So yeah, a couple of months later, we had that second surgery. And then straight after that, she had um, six days of radiation. And the side effects of that possibly could stunt her growth a little bit. That's sort of the main one that she may experience, but the others are all fine and she's fine. Now that you have the benefit of hindsight, when you look back on these experiences, what are some of the blessings that you see in your family now as a result of what happened? Um, Esther's just such an amazing person. When people go through trials, there's so much growth that happens afterwards, especially the ones that choose to grow. And she has just chosen to grow. Like she hasn't let, she's never been a victim about it. She's never been negative about it. And she sort of set the tone for everyone else around her and, and just has this beautiful spirit. And she's taught me so much more than I feel like I could have ever taught her. I think her brothers and sisters as well have that beautiful example from her. And with the older three all having albinism, they've like got each other's back. And there's just, Esther's got, the most amazing amount of faith. Like when she got baptized, she cried like crazy, but it sounded like something was wrong. I went and gave her a big cuddle. And, and when she finally got some breath, she's like, that was the best feeling ever. Oh my goodness. But it, it was so, so beautiful. And she's like, can I get baptized every day? And I was just, my heart was just, you know, as a mom, you just love that. And even now she says to me, she's like, mom, that was like the best day of my life getting baptized. So got nothing but gratitude at this point. I think too, like probably the only thing I would want to express more is just how grateful I am to like the family around me and, and the friends and, and people from church, like people really did open up their hearts and their homes and, and did everything they could to help us during that time. I'm always going to be grateful for that. What does your family look like now? Are they healthy? Are things going well? We are all doing really well. Um, they still have, with the connection between bilateral Wilms tumors and albinism, when they took out the tumors in her surgery, they took a sample to go test if there was a connection there. The sample that they got wasn't good enough to be able to test. So that's sort of still up in the air about whether it's connected, whether it's not connected. Okay. Um, so don't want to like freak anyone out. 
who maybe has albinism that thinks they might get cancer or, you know, um, that's not the case. But for us and our family, there could be another gene there. So Esther, Tommy and Rosie, they're getting scans every six months. Um, There's a couple little issues here and there that they're noticing, which makes sense with, with their genetics. But overall, honestly, they're happy. They're healthy kids. They're enjoying school at the moment. We um, just moved into a um, a nice house, and it's got tinting on all the windows, so the kids are all oh, very comfortable inside. So <laughs> like it's such a little thing, but it just makes such a huge a difference, difference for them. So they're very mm-hmm. comfortable, and um, I'm really just seeing their personalities come out, which is it's it's such a fun age and a fun time. And trying to figure out at the moment as they're getting older and interested in more things, how we can get outside and be more active and um mum and dad got a, a boat um not too long ago and were able to take the kids out on it and they just had the coolest experience and and want to do more stuff like that again so it's just sort of trying to break the barriers of what they can and can't do with albinism and um mm. I'm enjoying that journey right now yeah I'm really happy to hear that you're doing what you can obviously within reason to give them a really rich and fulfilling life I think it's also important to remember like they're still a part of me and Tom. So their interests um, can be and, and are in our case very similar to what we're interested in. So if they weren't interested in going outside and being at the beach, I wouldn't be, you know, forcing making them, them do that or yeah. forcing them to do that. But because their interest is there, we're, we're exposing them to whatever they're interested in and, and not letting them, yeah, have boundaries placed onto them. What do you think you learned about yourself from the past decade? It's a hard one to like say out loud, but honestly, I learned that I am a good mom. It sounds so silly, but you just, I think good moms are always trying to be better. And so it's really hard to just say, I'm a good mom and be confident in that. And I think after everything that we've been through, I feel like, no, I did the best that I could. And I'm still obviously working and trying to get better, but I learned how strong I actually am. I learned how much energy I need to get to the reserves of my energy. (laughs) I wish that you could, maybe you will hear it when you listen back to this recording, but Mm. I wish you could see yourself in the way that I see. I mean, you've mentioned so many times I felt guilty. I didn't want to enjoy the beach by myself because I was thinking of Esther. I felt guilty that I was going to be away from her surgery when you were literally giving birth to another child. (laughs) Like. All I'm hearing is the purest form of love and selflessness. And I think that, oh my gosh, you're going to make me cry. I think that that God knew that, that you would give everything you had to your children and he needed someone like you to be as strong as you've been. Oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, like I said, I'm crying and laughing at the same time. It's not a good mix. That means a lot to me. Thank you. You're welcome. I think maybe two more questions. The first one is, what have you learned about God, about Jesus Christ, about the atonement? And do you have any advice for other parents out there who might be struggling, who might have you know, children that really do require extra care? Sorry, I know I just put two questions into one. <laughs> That's okay. For me, I just, it made everything really real that you learn in church. I've been able to put into practice a lot of principles that we've been taught and have had Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, I guess, confirm that that's the way things work. Thankfully, I had practiced a lot of faith early on in life with different things. And um, when you get confirmed that he's there for you over and over again, you sort of get to a point where you just have this trust 
And I think that really helped carry me through everything was just, no, I know he's there for me. I know he's got my back. Even if I can't see the full picture, I've always trusted that he can see the full picture. Now being able to look back, you can see all the amazing blessings that happened. And if you can sort of have that foresight in the beginning, then you don't have to question why is this happening to me or feel as deeply how bad the things are because you know that there's something better ahead. I guess that ties into sort of advice that have for other people going through hard, hard times or that have kids with, with, um, disabilities and struggles. And as a parent, you would never wish for your child to have anything bad happen to them. You'd never want them to go through hard things or to hurt themselves or, or anything. But you do want the growth that happens when they go through hard things. And I think that's how Heavenly Father views us in Him giving us the trials that He knows we can handle. He knows also the blessing that comes after. He knows the person that you, who you are going to become if you can conquer these different trials that you're going through. I often try and think of how Heavenly Father feels watching us struggling. And I think that He is proud of us. And I think that he is there to help us wherever he can. And ultimately he wants us to learn that, um, what we need to learn from the experience. And so that's what I try and do for my kids is I love them. I'm there for them as much as they need me to be. But ultimately if they need to learn something and they need to go through a hard time, I've got to let them go through it. Beautiful. Thank you. The final question then, which kind of ties into the, the theme of the podcast. After all the things that you've experienced over the past decade, what does choosing faith now mean to you? For me, it's sometimes you do start to question things in you and you get a bit down on yourself and you literally do have to choose faith. There becomes a point where you can be as logical as you want about everything. You can look down every avenue. But for me, choosing faith means remembering the experiences that I've had, remembering how many times Heavenly Father has confirmed to me that faith works. And obviously faith without works is dead, you know, the typical saying. And so just checking in with myself and being honest with myself about, am I putting the work in that faith requires? And if I'm not, then that's on me, not on anyone else. Thanks for tuning in to this episode, the first one of the new year. I hope you enjoyed listening to Casey's story and hearing how, despite her challenges, she has felt the hand of God consistently guiding her family. If you like this podcast, I'd love if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with a friend. And if you know anyone whose story of faith you'd like to hear on the show, you can get in touch with me on Facebook or Instagram using the handle Choosing Faith. Have a great week, everyone.